local news, culture, and NPR. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farming Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, I share my conversation with Tammy Preble from Wolf Springs Farm. She has a presence at farm markets in Hawley and Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and in Calicoon, New York. We hear why her business plan to grow small and slowly is a good idea for beginner farmers. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Vice President Kamala Harris is standing by Ukraine. President Zelensky, as President Joe Biden and, have, and I have made clear, we will be with you for as long as it takes. Harris speaking there at a joint news conference with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today at the annual Munich Security Conference. The White House back request for another $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine remains stalled in Congress by Republican opposition. With U.S. military aid delayed for months now, Zelensky warned that an artificial deficit of weapons will give Russia breathing room. He spoke in Munich hours after Ukraine pulled its forces out of the eastern town of Avdiivka, handing Russia its first major battlefield success since last summer. The BBC's Andrew Harding reports. Ukrainian forces are pulling out of Avdiivka after one of the longest and bloodiest battles of the war. Ukraine's top military commander said Russian troops had almost encircled the town and he was withdrawing his forces in order to prevent them from being surrounded. This is a significant moment for the Kremlin, its first major battlefield success since last summer. Avdiivka itself is not much of a prize, but its fall will strengthen Russia's chances of pushing on towards more strategic towns in the region. Former President Donald Trump is vowing to appeal a judge's ruling that orders him to pay more than $350 million for civil fraud. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports that decision is a blow to Trump as he seeks a second term in the White House. New York Attorney General Letitia James is applauding the ruling, saying that the court ruled in favor of every hard-working American who plays by the rules. Donald Trump falsely knowingly inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself, his family, and to cheat the system. Minutes later, Trump shot back, blasting the judge's decision. A crooked New York State judge just ruled that I have to pay a fine of $355 million for having built a perfect company. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The Department of Veterans Affairs is trying to fix a glitch in the VA home loan process that has put 40,000 veterans in danger of foreclosure. Here's NPR's Quill Lawrence reporting. The VA offered what's called a forbearance during the pandemic. It allowed people to temporarily skip mortgage payments. But VA abruptly canceled that program, and lenders started demanding all the missed payments immediately. Iraq veteran Edmund Garcia said he's being threatened with foreclosure after he took the VA's offer of help. They said that they were going to keep my payments comparable to what I was paying. They told veterans that they were going to help them. I want them to honor it. 
At a congressional hearing this week, the VA said it was working on a fix that will let veterans resume their normal payments, but gave few details on how the process will work. VA says it will be ready by May. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This is NPR News. Welcome back to Farm and Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. On today's show, I share my conversation with Tammy Preble from Wolf Springs Farm. She has a presence at farm markets in Holly and Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and in Calicoon, New York. We'll hear why her business plan to grow small and slowly is a good idea for beginner farmers. Wolf Springs Farmland in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, is part of the Family Forest Carbon Program. It's a carbon sequestration program that promotes mature forest growth through management practices that require landowners to engage in sustainable harvesting practices. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Hi, my name is Tammy Preble from Wolf Springs Farm. We are located in Honesdale, just north of town, about 15 minutes north of town on Carly Brook Road. My husband and I moved here in 2016, and I decided that I wanted to start a garden just for ourselves. We moved to a home that had no garden or farm plots existing. It was all yard and hayfield. And so we started with a couple of garden boxes, grew food for ourselves. And over the years, that has morphed into more and more beds and areas for food production. And now I'm in my fourth year of farmer's markets. Did you mention how many acres you had and what made you choose that property that you bought? Total, we have 50 acres, but probably less than a quarter of an acre in vegetable production. A majority of our land is forested. It's a program where we don't harvest any trees for 30 years. And so we're just sort of keeping the woods as a wild area for now. So we have five acres of open space, but like I said, probably only a quarter of an acre in vegetable production. We do also have meat rabbits, laying hens, and laying ducks. In previous years, I've done meat chickens and meat ducks too, but I'm going to take a break from that this year because the garden has gotten out of control, (laughs) and I only have so much time on my hands. Oh my goodness, an out-of-control garden. (laughs) Describe what that is. Weeds up to my ear, (laughs) mainly. is So we don't do conventional farming at all. We're not certified organic. However, because I'm farming on such a small space, I don't use tractors or any equipment other than my muscles and some simple levers like wheelbarrows <laughs> and digging forks and and whatnot. So everything's done by hand. And so it's all manpower, man hours to keep things tidy. But once the weeds take hold, it can be hard to keep it under control without sprays and whatnot. And what do you think makes the weeds go out of control? Once they go to seed. Each individual plant produces hundreds of seeds. So if you have one year where you haven't maintained an area to keep it weed-free, it only gets worse from there. 
what type of weeds do you have? Do you have anything that can be foraged for either teas or salads? A lot of that stuff becomes more time consuming than it's worth. And it's easier just to start pulling them out. I do have a lot of lamb's quarters, which is edible. However, it's not a popular vegetable. One year I did try to harvest it and sell it at market and nobody wanted to buy it. So at this point, it really is easier just to pull it out. Do you compost any of that or is that adding to the problem? I have a pile of garden refuse that I put in the wood line, basically. And because we don't have tractors, I'm not able to sort of manage the vegetation breakdown. So it's easier to just put it in the woods, the wildlife eats it or makes homes out of it. And eventually it just decomposes into the ground. The only thing I do compost is our rabbit and chicken manure, because that's in a pretty small quantity. Well, you mentioned you've been doing the small-scale farming and gardening for about four years, so you're considered new. What kind of insight can you share about starting a farm, and what made you think that you wanted to do this? That is a multifaceted answer, and it's going to be different for everybody, of course. So for me personally, one of the reasons we moved to this area and bought a fairly large piece of land was because we wanted privacy, we wanted to be self-sufficient in terms of growing our own food, managing our own livestock, and that's a big enough job just in and of itself, especially if you have a larger family. It can be daunting just to have eggs and vegetables for your family. We have a pretty small family. It's just my husband and I and my 10-year-old daughter. So it was pretty easy to start producing more food than what we would eat, even with home preservation, canning and drying and whatnot. So once I realized that people were willing to purchase produce from me, I've just grown very slowly over the years to get into more and more markets. My first year, I didn't go to any markets. I started with a very small CSA of only 10 members to see if it was something that I could manage. Then the following year, I bumped it up. I think I was at somewhere between 15 to 25. And then the third year, I started my first farmer's market. So I'm not even counting my first year with the 10 members as really my first year farming. That was really just a big garden. And I was sort of experimenting to see if I could manage the land to feed other people. Okay, you mentioned that you're at farmer's markets. I'm familiar with you being at the Cooperage on Saturday. What other markets do you attend and what do you offer the customers? So the Cooperage Market is the Honesdale's Market for the winter time. This is our winter location. In the summertime, we move to Dave's Super Duper parking lot, and the time does change for that as well. It moves to earlier in the morning. On Fridays, I'm at the Holly Market. They also run year-round. There's an outdoor location at Bingham Park, and currently the winter location is in the Holly Hub. That's on Fridays from it's 1 to 4. And on Sundays, the Calicoon Market's at the Delaware Valley Youth Center for winter, and that runs from 11 to 2, and then they move outside in April to the park. So right now, 
I am offering homemade refrigerator pickles and homemade frozen soups. The reason that I do this is because I want to have a presence at the farmer's market year-round to help develop my customer base. And I don't have vegetable production in the wintertime because I don't have any greenhouses. I also don't have a large storage cooler where I can store root vegetables. You know, we have some other farms that will harvest most of their vegetables and just store them um, in a large cold room and bring them to market. Things like carrots, beets, onions, most root vegetables can be stored for a decent amount of time, but I don't have any of that. So once I have gone through my own produce for making the soups and the pickles, then I start buying from the other farmers who are at my various markets. Do you have any background experience that you uh, pull from as a resource, or is this your first time doing this? So I'm not what I would consider a first-time homesteader. I mean, even though I grew up in the suburbs, my mom always had a small vegetable garden that we had to help maintain as kids. And in the very first house that my husband and I purchased in 2005, I started a garden right away. So I've been quote unquote homesteading for many years. Uh, we also got some covert chickens in our little suburban homestead, I think in uh, 2006 or 2007. So um, I've always been interested in, 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 really it only took a couple years of that to start canning and doing other things like that. So, um, my husband and I have always been interested in being self-sufficient, making our own food. We always cook at home. We almost never eat out. Um, just that, like knowing that we can, that we don't have to rely on the grocery store um, if there's ever a problem, you know. You mentioned an expression, covert chickens. What is <laughs> so a lot of townships and cities have gotten a lot more lenient on chickens recently, but in the early 2000s, most um, suburban areas did not allow chickens. Uh, where we lived in Maryland, it was regulated by the whole county. And if you didn't have an acre of land, you couldn't even have one chicken. So I just got four chickens. <laughs> and none of my neighbors told on me. And so it was fine until we moved three years later to a horse farm where it was no problem that we had. a You know, then, then we went from four chickens to a dozen to two dozen chickens. <laughs> Maybe your neighbors are okay that you don't have a rooster or do you? Well, now we do, but yeah, we did not have a rooster when we lived in the subdivision. Um, though hens do like to tell you all about it when they lay an egg. So contrary to popular belief, hens are not necessarily super quiet, but they aren't as loud as roosters and you won't necessarily get as many complaints with them. But I am glad to see a lot of um, towns and counties and whatnot going towards a more reasonable approach of allowing people to have four or five or six hens and no roosters. I think it's excellent. Anything that we can do to allow people more freedoms in their food, their own food production is good. You also mentioned that you and your husband love the idea of being self-sufficient. 
And that's one of the uh, prompts for you having a garden and feeding yourself. Is there any other aspect of your living that you're living uh, self-sufficiently, maybe with energy, solar energy, or aspects like that? Well, we try not to waste anything. That's a big kind of mantra in our house. Uh, We don't like to waste food. We don't like to waste clothing. I pretty much buy all my clothing secondhand. Or we buy something that's very high quality that's going to last a long time. We try to put as few things into the garbage as possible, which I guess kind of goes along with that same thing of not being wasteful. And I think it's an, an important mindset to have in the farming community because our profit margins are so thin that you want to get as much use out of everything as possible. So it kind of goes hand in hand. You can't have a wasteful mindset and be successful in this career. I very much appreciate that philosophy. I, too, practice some of that recycled clothing. A lot of times the quality is so much more superior when they're just a little bit older And at this point in our lives, there's so much stuff in our lives already. We don't need to add to the pile. As a beginning farmer, did you find that the previous generation of farmers was helpful? Did you reach out in any way to them? Oh, yes. I have no shame. So it's easy for me to go to people and say, I don't know. Now, I don't think that the previous generations are necessarily reaching out to the young generations. And I don't know if it's their job to do that. Um, I think it is our job as up and coming farmers to be more proactive and not sit on the theoretical couch and say, Hey, how come nobody's coming over here and teaching me this stuff? You do have to take the first steps and those first steps can be reading books, and watching YouTube videos, you can learn a lot just from that. But also, it really helps to get hands-on. I worked with one of my neighbors who was a dairy farmer. I had never milked cows in my life. And I spent two years helping him milk cows a couple of days a week. And it was it's nothing that I would ever want to do as a job or run my own dairy. But it was just such a interesting experience to get into a field that I wasn't overly interested in, but I just love learning new things. And when you see the way other people farm, you know, it's very easy as a small farmer to look down our noses at larger farms and say, I can't believe they do that. How dare they spread these chemicals or do this and that? And if you go there and actually work on these farms, you still might not say that that's for me. But you might get a better understanding of why things are done the way that they're done. And it's not saying that those farmers can't do things better. But I do think it is important to broaden your own horizons and see some different things in the industry and kind of glean little tidbits of information from various experiences. In... The distant or near future, do you see yourself mentoring farmers that may want to start? Again, it kind of goes to that they have to take the first step approach. 
I don't mind mentoring. Um, in fact, I've done a couple of garden consults for people who live in town and just wanted to know where the best place in their yard was to plant some things. But if there was a beginning farmer, I would want to see them take the initiative and give a hand and help with things on the farm. And I have no problem doing that at all. It seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect. And as a Gen Xer, I feel like I am stuck between the two generations. I'm not a young farmer by any means, but I'm not of the older boomer generation, so to speak. So I feel like some of the younger folks are sort of waiting for somebody older to mentor them. And the olders are just chugging along, barely making ends meet as it is. So they're not really looking to take on more responsibility or more duties. They're just trying to keep their own heads above water. But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't appreciate a younger person coming and taking an interest. Do you see any aspects that are changing in farming or some aspects that are staying the same traditionally? That's a pretty hard one for me to answer because, like I said, I haven't been doing the farming thing for very long. I do think that consumers are getting more withdrawn from the food system. Again, it's the initiative thing. The people who are taking initiative and really reaching out and going to markets and purchasing you know, that's different. But I think the general public and the general consumer is just getting more and more detached from how food is grown. Legislators are getting detached from how food is grown. And they like to make laws about things that they really don't know anything about or how how it operates. And that can really affect everything from availability, quality, quantity and pricing of food. The 2023 Farm Bill has not been signed or finalized as of yet, and I understand that will be done so in the fall. Do you have any insight or comments you'd like to make? Have you studied the Farm Bill? Will will it affect you? I haven't studied the Farm Bill at all. If anyone is interested in how politics affects farming, I would strongly encourage you to join your local Farm Bureau. Wayne Pike has a Farm Bureau, but most counties have their own Farm Bureaus as well, which then falls under a state Farm Bureau and then there's the, the national, the Farm Bureau at the national level. So that's a really good way for you to get involved in agriculture or politics, if that interests you. Do you have any insight or vision of the future of farming? Let's just say in Wayne County here. So there is a lot of interesting things up and coming in Wayne County. We have a great organization called Wayne Tomorrow, which has its own agriculture committee within that group. And they've got a lot of things that are up and coming at various stages of planning and funding. So I think as long as all of those things go through, then there's potential to do really good things and improve existing farmers' ways of life and maybe encourage new farmers to come on board. And of course, Wayne Tomorrow is something you can access as a member of the public. You don't need to be anybody special to get in touch with that organization. They have their own website. But there are challenges that can't be fixed 
like the quality of our soil and our weather and things like that that will always make it challenging to farm here. Well, what is it about the quality of the soil that's different? I know there's a lot of rocks, Pennsylvania potatoes, is there? Yes. <laughs> they're called for gardeners and farmers. What else? For sure, the rocks. And, you know, if you go down to like Lancaster, they just have very fluffy, loamy soil. Uh, we don't have that here because of the mountains. So then when it rains, it turns to clay. And it, if you are using equipment, it makes it near impossible to get equipment on your fields. Well, we usually have wet springs, but... Yeah, you know, when we get sustained rains, it can really be an issue for people. We also don't have flat land. Most of us are growing on at least somewhat of a slope, and that leads to erosion and runoffs and loss of soil in general. And then you have the weather. It's cloudy pretty much all winter and into spring. It's cooler here than in most areas. So we have a much shorter growing season. I think one year I counted a hundred days between frosts. So of course that was very challenging. We have random late frosts. I know one year we had a Mother's Day weekend that was 19 degrees and heavy winds and ice and snow. And I know we've had other years where we've had frosts the first week of June. And everybody's got their tomato plants out, and then they have to go back out to Agway or Home Depot or whatever and purchase new plants and start over again. Well, we're in February and almost the start of a new season. How are you feeling about approaching 2024 season? Well, I'm always learning from previous seasons, and by the time we get out of Christmas and the holidays, I'm usually ready to start focusing on the next growing season. I've already started my onion and leek and shallot seeds, and I'm probably going to be starting my celery in the next two weeks. And then I have just sort of a gradual seed starting program. Probably in mid-March, I'll be starting the brassicas like cabbages and broccolis and whatnot. So I do start as many seeds myself as I can. And then just bringing lessons forward. Like I said, we're not going to do the meat birds this year because I want to concentrate on tackling those weeds that have gotten out of hand over the last two years because I expanded a little bit too much too fast and I wasn't able to stay ahead of it. So we're not going to do any expanding this year. Just going to try to maintain what is existing and uh, focus on bettering my systems, being more efficient. Before we close, what advice would you like to share with aspiring farmers? Up-and-coming farmers, you know, I think it just depends on your specific situation. Everybody has a different level of risk that they want to take. For example, for me personally, I won't accept any debt risk. And so that's what's preventing me from growing faster because I won't go into debt to build greenhouses or cold rooms or whatever. I'm doing everything by cash flow only. But in a way, it's good because it's keeping me humble and it's keeping me from getting too big too fast and getting overwhelmed. I think 
people who get into a field like this can get overwhelmed very easily if they get in over their heads. Tammy Preble of Wolf Springs Farm, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Farm and Country and Radio Catskill. We look forward to your farmer's markets and talking with you in the future. Thank you for sitting down and chatting with me, Rosie. And for everybody out there, please come and support your local farmer's markets. We ended our conversation talking about Tammy's favorite seed catalogs. She loves the familiar Johnny Seeds, Baker Creek Rare Seeds, Territorial Seed Company, and Fedco. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by a Radio Catskill volunteer. Special thanks goes to our guest, Tammy Preble, from Wolf Springs Farm in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farming Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, and online at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org I'm Tom Papa, filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Adam Burke reminded us of the things that bring us together. One thing that we as a society can all agree upon is that we all hate mimes. We'll be speaking up nice and loud as we discuss the big stories of the week and talk to the legendary rock band Sleater Kenny on this week's News Quiz from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. Hi, this is Jeff. I'm your host on Radio